But what got us through and what I think is key to overcome these bureaucratic hurdles is, is that personal relationship. Uh, if, so as John said, with his relationship with the one official that lasted however many years they stayed in touch, they said, as soon as resources are available, we'll move. That's exactly what's needed in, in these environments. The relationships don't start with the bureaucracies. If they start with the bureaucracies, you're always thinking about, okay, what can we fit within our existing rules? If they start with the individuals and the shared passion and the shared goals and the shared commitments, then you can figure out where those pathways are around the rules, where you can get waivers to the rules, but they require that relationship. They require persistence and ultimately you, you muddle your way through to something hopefully that's, that's the net gain for, for the city, for the county, for the nonprofit, for the university, and for the community that's being served. If I were to ask you about the state of the relationship between academia and practitioners in the field of public administration and nonprofits, what would you say? I began an investigation of this question because I saw the complexity of challenges facing communities. I became interested in finding professionals who endeavored to build a bridge between these sectors. When I reached out to Professor John Diamond almost a year ago, I was curious about his attention to practitioner issues. He is a professor emeritus at Edgeville University in Lancashire, England. When we connected, I asked him how he understood his role. He shared with me that he often serves in the role of critical friend, which may not be the role that first comes to mind when you think of an academic. You might wonder, as I did, what this looks like. Here is a description John shared with me. There is a link in the show notes. A critical friend can be defined as a trusted person who asks provocative questions, provides data to be examined through another lens, and offers critiques of a person's work as a friend. A critical friend takes the time to fully understand the context of the work presented and the outcomes that the person or group is working towards. The friend is an advocate for the success of that work. This idea piqued my curiosity. I began to wonder about how supportive relationships develop between academia and practitioners and why they don't develop more often. It was my good fortune that John shared two important relationships in his circle and invited me to engage with them. I met Professor Thomas Breyer from the University of Central Florida at the ICMA conference in Columbus, Ohio last fall, and later Sarah Young from Kennesaw State University in Georgia via Zoom. After my conversations with them, I realized just how deep the topic of relationship building between these sectors can go. Indeed, this conversation today is a deep dive. We begin and end with the idea that relationships between these sectors hold great potential. We explore examples. We talk about what holds us back from making these relationships. But most importantly, we talk about how these relationships come about. The show notes provide some good stopping points along the way if you wish to dip into this conversation. I think this episode is especially important for the discussion of why and how we build these relationships. The potential, in my opinion, is immense, and I don't think we engage the possibilities enough. So do we want these relationships? And if so, why? What are we willing to invest in terms of time, social capital, and energy to realize them? 
This conversation is a beginning point to explore relationships between local government, academia, and nonprofits. How do we bridge the divide in our world to create better, stronger communities? Just before I began this conversation today, I happened to open up a newsletter from the Institute of Local Government in California with their 2022 annual report. And in this report, they say that over 50% of their members indicate that building meaningful relationships with stakeholders is their biggest engagement challenge. And I thought it was interesting that they put it in terms of meaningful relationships. It opens up this question of whether there's something significant that we need to be thinking about as we build these relationships. So I begin today by asking John what it is that he finds so important about building relationships. Let's get started. Yes, thank you for that. So I'm not claiming any originality here, but, and I was thinking about this quite seriously the last, the last couple of weeks, knowing we were going to talk about it. And if I trace it back, I can pinpoint where I appreciated a, how important it was for local government managers to have the opportunity to talk to and listen to researchers, scholars, academics, and secondly, how hard it was for them to sustain those relationships. And it, so the events tumor saw, and this makes me feel very old. I realize this It's when I was doing my doctoral research, which is in the late 1980s, and I was interviewing local government managers and Many of them said towards the end of the interviews, something like, I really enjoyed doing this. I don't get the opportunity to talk to people other than my team or my superiors and having someone from outside listen to me is incredibly valuable. I one or two of them said things like, I don't know what you've got out of this, but I've got a lot of it. And when I finished the doctorate. I decided to, about four or five years later, to go back to some of them. And I had maintained some contact with a fair number of them. And I asked if I could come and interview them again. And not some people had moved. Some people said yes. And I did a second round of interviews. And what came out of that, quite apart from the thing that I was interested in, was them saying, this rarely happens. We often get interviewed by academics, by researchers, we meet them, we think it's very useful and helpful, but we never know what happens next. So there's something about the what happens next. So those two moments stayed with me. And then fast forward to the sort of mid 1990s. And I was with another colleague. We set up a unit in the university where I was working with a brief to work outside. So I was doing a lot of evaluations of public or not-for-profit initiatives. And a theme, again, that was recurring became more evident. Perhaps it was the nature of the evaluations, it might have been the nature of the time, which was about the importance of sharing that learning across the divide and how hard it was. The challenge to establish those relationships. And it seems to me, and I don't know I'll finish them over today, whether Sarah and Tom would agree with this conclusion. It may be different in, in the States, but it does seem to me that in 
if you look back over the last 32 years in the UK, whilst there have been lots of initiatives which are about universities talking about their place in the community, lots of initiatives, some of them supported by central government of both parties, some of them coming out of the university networks. The thing that is common to all those initiatives is that the parameters are shaped by the university. And the opportunity for the outside world, so that would be the not-for-profit sector, that would be the public sector, that also would be the private sector too, actually, to be a genuine partner in shaping what that relationship would be like is very rare. And I think when there are moments when it happens, it's, it's something that we should hold on to and try to understand what was it about that particular dynamic that enabled that to happen. So there's a current initiative in the UK that actually the series that Tom and I involved in, we're just about to publish a volume and a contribution to that. Really imaginative, lots of really positive things. I don't want to criticize it, but it is from the university perspective. And that seems to me the challenge. So the three of us with you, Nancy, work in universities, and it's how we, if you like, take our learning and understanding of our organization and help city managers, neighborhood organizations to gain lots of things, but more importantly, have a conversation in which they're more equal partners than they are at the moment. Tom and Sarah, I really would invite your response or thoughts about that. Sure. I'll jump in, Sarah, if that's okay. The, everything John said is really spot on. And just referring back, Nancy, to your, the quote from the, this quest for meaningful relationships out of the group in California, it rings true to, to something that I just published with some colleagues in a new ICMA publication, the effect of local government manager. It's a new green book for the local government community. And in this chapter that, that my colleagues, Valerie Lemmy and Timothy Shaper wrote, we referred to the relationally intelligent manager, the manager who is aware of the diverse array of stakeholders within their orbit, the relationships that they have, the relationships that they would like to have, the gaps in relationships. And to your point, there's a known gap in relationship with local universities or universities in general. And just part of what, what I do in my work to, to close that gap to build the capacity of the university and to build the capacity of local governments and nonprofit organizations so that they can more effectively communicate with each other, find each other, leverage each other's unique resources so that all can, can benefit. Now I'm a little envious of what John is describing in the UK and some government perhaps initiatives to strengthen the relationship between university and community in the United States. I would be curious Sarah's perspective on this, but Higher ed in the United States is currently in a rather tenuous 
position, generally speaking. So we are having to renegotiate our relationship internally with each other, let alone externally to, to stakeholders like the local government community. But, uh, but all that, I think, leads us to a final destination, which is almost where, where I started my career in academia when I joined the faculty at the University of Central Florida in 2007, right before the recession in 2008, when everybody was losing money, nobody had enough resources to accomplish their missions. And I pulled together my resources from the university, linked them with certain sectors, service sectors within the Central Florida community and filled the relational gaps and the resource gaps so that, so that it all could move forward in a more productive way. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll close there and let Sarah jump in, but all that to say, I, I agree with everything John has said and this idea of relational intelligence, I think is absolutely critical to to understanding how universities can can successfully engage the local government community uh, and vice versa. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Tom. Thank you. I think that those are really salient points that you've made. One of the issues that I think that we have in the United States in terms of engaged scholarship and engaged learning with universities is that there's no major footprint in terms of what it's supposed to look like for a university to work with a community. Last year, I was involved in a panel at the Engaged Scholarship Consortium that involved five or six different university leaders from universities across the United States talking about what their engagement in the community looks like. And every single one was very different in terms of even where they were placed within the university, who they answered to, what their structure was, what types of faculty training opportunities they provided. And so we, as far as institutions are still trying to figure out what this looks like. And I think that has led to this kind of history that John talked about of the university driving what participation in the community looks like. And I think that there is a shift that is starting to happen in recognizing that universities can't be dictating what communities need. Communities need to dictate what communities need. We're starting to think, see things like participatory action research come about in terms like that, which means like going into the community, identifying what their needs are and working with them. I'm writing a book right now with Dr. Carly Redding that uses the ask-based community development approach, which goes into your community. It teaches a curriculum of how to go into a community and work with the community to identify the need. But that is something I think has come to a crux within the last even five to 10 years. And we've started to identify that we as universities have to change our practices. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to explore a little bit how you all met. And I think, but I am not sure if it was through conferencing, but I know that in our preparation call, we talked a little bit about the importance of conferencing. And I'm quite sure the local managers I know would say definitely conferencing is a very big component of their own networking, professional development. And so as a relationship building opportunity. Is there anything in particular you could say about how you use conferencing to meet? Yeah. That's a really great question. And a few years ago, I, I wrote a 
column in one of the professional association news magazines about why I thought conferences were a waste of time. And it was really time to finish them. And it's interesting how you say something at a particular time and it reflects. I'm not saying I was disingenuous about that. I did think that. I thought that some of the conferences I was going to were too, were very much focused on the discipline and that's fine. That, that's okay. But they're absolutely not particularly interested in the world outside the discipline. And I think my attitudes change. And I think my attitude now would be a much more, I think, choosy or about which conferences I go to. And also I think I'm much more interested in some of the things we've just been talking about, the relational dimension, but I'm also interested in how academics and scholars and also practitioners think about not just how they work together, but how that learning can be shared with undergraduates, postgraduates, the whole ongoing professional learning, the way that it wasn't the case probably 20 years ago, if I'm honest. So I think the short answer to your question, I think is, it's important, I think, to think about a conference as a way of genuinely meeting people and sometimes be willing to listen to ideas that are not necessarily yours, but, and also be open to happenstance. Mm. See, I, I don't know whether Tom, see, Sarah and I have never met and we just know each other in this medium. And uh, one of my hopes next year is that will, because I'm planning to visit the States on a kind of a long visit. So I really would like to meet Sarah and the family. Tom and I shared a panel. We were brought together at a conference yeah. to share a panel. And I think neither of us had, could possibly have imagined that a few years later, we'd be coaching a book series. Tom would be a visiting professor at the university I was at, and we'd be sitting in this space. So I'm a great believer in that thing about chance or happenstance. Now I know it's not chance in a literal sense because we were both there and there's a reason why we were there. So there's a bit of planning, but I think the opportunity to have conversations is a bit chance-like really. It doesn't always happen. And Sarah and I met online and I realized, I think we had a number of shared interests and it's about how you, and then we develop that. Weirdly, I'll finish now. I would say that, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say in the audience, please don't misunderstand. I've really benefited from COVID because I've engaged in this space much more than I was pre-COVID. Yeah. And that's, I've met people, I had an introduction, Nancy, you and I wouldn't be talking if it wasn't that. I met Tom at ICMA last fall, which was a real, I was so happy for that opportunity. John had recommended that I introduce myself and Tom accepted. And I, I think about that conference space, it's a huge conference, number one really feel that the 
the opportunities to mix, like if we were to actually take this conversation and put it into a conference environment, I'm not a fan of those classroom style conference setups. I would love to go into a conference room where you have round tables and part of the session is interacting with whoever you happen to be at the table with. That happens sometimes, but it's the unusual session that goes like that. And so I don't know if there's anything else about conferencing that you would think that could be yeah. help this challenge. Yeah, I no. Think, no. Go ahead, Sarah. Oh, no, sorry. I, I think that networking is a really important part of conferences, especially for early scholars, mm -hmm. uh, PhD students, those that are just coming into the field. But they definitely have a tendency to silo ourselves and attend conferences that are full of academics. And there might be a smattering of practitioners in there, but they're not very well integrated. I think other fields tend to do this a little better than public administration does. For example, I just returned from South by Southwest EDU, and that was an excellent conference that was probably a 60-40 mix of practitioners to academics. The AREA, ARA, A-E-R-A, the Association for Education Research Conference, that's another one that seems to be very like equally mixed, I think. So there are ways that this can be done to help to integrate the practitioners and academics, uh, but we have to start taking more thoughtful steps in that as, as well. And I want to make one more point about the network building component that I brought up a moment ago, which is it's great for early scholars, but it also tends to be the least equitable for early scholars. Early scholars tend to be more mapped to regional comprehensive universities that don't have big travel budgets or their PhD students, and they're expected to fund this out of their own pocket if they don't have funding from a specific professor. And so that can create inequity issues amongst PhD students and early scholars. So there, there's a plethora of issues going on with conferences. One, one, yeah. little, one little bit here on conference space. I think both Sarah and John have hit it spot on. General comment is that conferences will have different meaning for people, depending on where they are in their careers, uh, how they navigate a conference space will depend on where they are on, in their careers. But my counsel, my general counsel is going into conference space. We have to be open to the random conversation and we have to be open to invited conversations. Like when the two of us met at ICMA, Nancy, uh, I could have said, no, my schedule is full. I don't really have time. I have other work I need to do. No time to catch up. But then I, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And so we have to be open to the opportunity to engage conversations, even if we don't think we don't see the value right away. The worst case, you lose 30 minutes. The best case is you open new doors to new conversations and new partnerships and so forth and so on. So that's the one council. It's hard to say we want, we need to be strategic about all of our conferencing activity. We do a little bit where we go, how we invest our resources. Of course, we need some strategy, but we have to be open to that happenstance. We have to be open to the randomness and, uh, and we have to be comfortable breaking out of whatever shell we might have within yeah. ourselves to, uh, to engage 
sometimes awkward conversations. Yes. You never know where the magic will lie. That's right. Yes, I feel like that practicing awkward relationships, for some of us, it's a real thing. Mm. Others are made for these environments. And it's always a struggle for me, but it, it and in particular, I like to have the substantive conversation. That's what I'm interested in. And certainly I found that with you, Tom, on that day. And I do want to just think about this potential now. So I, I don't want to speak for all local government managers, but I think as I broached this topic, I've been a little surprised that their mind immediately goes to, you mean like in a learning environment, professional development, they immediately think about the teaching relationship as being the valuable relationship, or they think about the intern that comes to their municipality. And I know that what we're here talking about today is it goes way beyond that. I, and so I want to just start out with a little bit of this potential that exists and how you see that potential in, in that relationship, maybe an example or something that, that you've, you're contemplating in terms of what you would like to see. So if I can jump in first. Yeah. So the relationships that I look for between university and community are not based on an expert to, to practitioner sort of relationship in a hierarchical form. That's a bad relationship. It's toxic. It's potentially exploitative. We need to break away from that mindset and think about partnerships and relationships that are based on mutuality and based on reciprocity. And I'll give one example of a current project I have right now with local governments in the central Florida area and some nonprofit organizations as well. I have a grant with colleagues at the University of Central Florida from the National Science Foundation. My, my colleagues in computer science and engineering developed a low cost air quality, solar powered, cyber secure air quality monitor. And as a team, we have installed approximately 100 of these air quality monitors throughout the city of Orlando and in neighborhoods and some other areas, some on city property, some at, at private residences. But we have given access to those who have signed up to participate in the research, folks who live and work, live, work, play, pray, basically, the stakeholders of the community giving them, we've given them access to real-time air quality data in their neighborhood. So they can see at any point in time, where should they be concerned about poor air quality? Uh, is it a good health day? Is it a bad health day? Because just backing up a little bit, the federal air quality monitoring stations are large, but they capture one, one space, one section. They're not neighborhood-based, they're not street-based. And there's a lot of variation, particularly as you get into lower-income communities uh, in cities around the country. So we, we have partnered with the city of Orlando, with Orange County, with some nonprofit organizations, faith organizations, to help deploy these air quality monitors throughout the region, Central Florida area, city of Orlando in particular. So that was the first step in the partnership. Part of that conversation was as we released these real-time air quality data, 
the city and county officials were concerned that as residents learned that maybe there was a spike in pollution outside their door, that they would start calling and writing to their local government officials with complaints, with concerns, with all kinds of potentially nasty messaging. So they, we needed to craft our educational approach to ensure that there was a buffer. Our city friends and our county friends would not be inundated by bad message. There was that relationship building. And in just a few weeks, we are about to launch the final step of this project and provide to the community approximately $10,000 that they will collectively decide how to invest to enhance education around air quality or to mitigate the harm that comes from poor air quality in certain neighborhoods. And for this, we're again engaging with our county and city governments, with nonprofit organizations, folks who have policy expertise, who are already investing resources in air quality policies and programs. They will be participating in the dialogue and deliberation process with us. Uh, but not as entities to steer the conversation or drive the conversation, but as technical experts. They can help the community members, the residents, make a determination about the best use of the resources. Maybe there's an existing pot of money that can be leveraged and more effectively. Maybe they have experience with an, an advocacy campaign or an educational campaign yeah. on air quality that did not work before, and they can provide that experience to the residents. So this is an example of, of mutuality, of reciprocity. Everybody's coming to the table together on a, a shared basis with the recognition that we all have our unique resources, residents included, and together we'll have a, a more healthier set of neighborhoods around the city. Yeah. It reminds me of what you started out with today, talking about the relationally intelligent manager. I think that is in a important piece of this in your partnership with the local government that they they have the empathy skills for their community to be able to translate some of what is happening there. So that is a really great example. John and Sarah, what would you add to this? I think that the, the best relationships are those that are still kind of strength-based approach to collaboration. Um, we have to identify what each partner is good at and what they bring to the partnership and then build on that. And so that can't be done if it's driven, as Tom pointed out, by one of the partners in the relationship. And so one of the things that we can do is take ourselves out of the box. We can try to not think about what a relationship should look like, but get in there and have conversations with each other. And so one of the things that when we involve students in these types of relationships, because that's what we as institutions of higher education are there for, right, as stu are our students and bring them into these relationships, that students tend to be much more creative. They tend to be much more innovative. Or if you ever have seen that TED talk about the marshmallow challenge and you have all these CEOs that are trying to build this tallest marshmallow tower, the one that wins it is the kindergartner. And and it's because it, these younger generations tend to be less constrained by social norms and they tend to be much more high risk, high reward. And so we can build on that. And by bringing the students in and utilizing that, we can help have them help to invigorate and motivate the partners. And so I'll give you one example where we've done this is 
I work with the Center for Agricultural Resilience in South Georgia, which is a nonprofit that helps to teach about regenerative and sustainable farming practices. And we brought a group of students to live down on White Oak Pastures Farm for the summer, as me and my co-author, Dr. Redding. And what our students went down there and we, they said, okay, what do you need? What can we do to help? And there was no real agenda that was set for the students to come and they lived there for the entire summer. And it turned out that there was a water infrastructure issue with the local government and that White Oak Pastures that houses this and is really associated with the Center for Agriculture Resilience wanted to expand and several other farmers wanted to expand using these regenerative farming practices. But the water infrastructure for the county was literally tapped out. There was nothing else that they could add to it. And so they asked the students to solve this problem. They said, we will give you a million dollars to the students if you can solve this water infrastructure issue. And so our students came up with these just really phenomenal ideas of things that like we as, resource, as researchers, as scholars, wouldn't probably have thought about. Composting toilets and reusable types of rainwater systems and all these cool technologies. And so that only came from using the strengths of our students to help us get outside of the box. I love that. <laughs> that and I can see where tapping into that curiosity of the youngest student who has not yet been fully trained in the way they're supposed to think. <laughs> it's remembering that gift is an important something to hold on to as you climb the academic ladder. Yeah, yeah. that's great. You know, I think with, without just two quick observations, one without trying to overcomplicate what we're talking about. It's about how do we maintain ourselves being, to go back to Tom's phrase earlier on, open to random, randomness. Mm-hmm. And I think that, so in a sense, that's what I'm hearing you say, Sarah, about the, so it is about an age difference, but it's also about consciously taking oneself out of a situation so as not prejudge, predetermine what the relationship might look like and being open to what comes out of the gut, the dialogue, what comes out of the kind of the skills and insights that are there. And in a way, one has to be, I think, one is that we have to understand how our institutional homes are sometimes uh, not open to that randomness. They have a kind of bias in favor of conformity and predictability, and they want to know what the output is a lot what the result is going to be. And also the organizations that we're working with sometimes will be far ahead of us and sometimes they won't be, but it's Mm -hmm. somehow we have to also recognize our limitations, but also have a sense of understanding the other. And I think what the second bigger point, I think again, it's linked to that in terms of understanding the other and understanding our own institutions, if you like, is seeing pos- where the possibilities might be. That's not the same thing as, for me, that's not the same thing as defining them and ruling other things out, but actually seeing where, those, where that might develop and what might 
happen as a result of that. So I'm guessing, Sarah, that because I heard you talk about this, that the idea of taking the students down to live on the farm for the summer, somebody somewhere will feel the need to do a risk assessment and somehow to rule out any of those possibilities. And that, yeah. and that might be a good thing that there's an assessment, but actually the idea itself is really important and really significant about what the potential value for everybody is, the students, the organizations, the agencies you're working with. And I, we know, because we can cite the literature that talks about good networking, good networkers, brokers, bridge builders, boundary spanners. We know all of that's really familiar, but I think what I've liked in the discussion so far is that idea of the relationally intelligent, and that was about relationally intelligent managers, but I think it's also relationally intelligent scholars and academics and relationally intelligent academic institutions, which are themselves open to possibilities. And that's culturally, that's quite hard. I think that the barriers to that are quite significant. So you have to have an understanding about how you can navigate that your way through that. And I'll just end with, the, I think I shared this in other conversations, but, um, some of the work I was doing with this municipal organization that I was referring with Bedroom in the past, and we've written about this and we've done a lot of work with them over the last 10 years, but for about two or three years, it was me and the manager there just keeping a conversation going about it was really good to work together, but the resources weren't there, the opportunities, and it would have been easy to walk away from and say, call me when you're ready or, but we were, both of us worked hard at checking in with each other. So we were building a relationship such that when the opportunity came with a more kind of formal piece of work that was itself quite informal, actually. We had established the relationship you talked about, Sarah. There was a kind of a, it was both strength space, but there was a lot of trust between us. However, I can remember the conversations back home, as it were, with my line manager about, so how is this project going? And I thought, it's not quite there yet. And it was a kind of slight exasperation on the part of the manager, because was this ever going to happen? And how long is it going to take before something happens? And there's something about culturally that my institution at that time find it hard to see the value of nurturing a relationship that might then lead to something. And in fact, it led to something really significant for the institution, but three years out from that, they were not convinced. And it's how we sustain that. So there's something about sustaining ourselves as much as it is about sustaining the relationship outside it. John, you're moving us into this next piece, I think, really beautifully. But I hear both the importance of the relationship to understand one another, but I'm also still in my own sort of context here thinking about the local government manager who really needs to understand the potential. So that's part of it, too. So the relationship is getting to the understanding of what the academic can bring to the table that we might not immediately understand that value. 
And so in this next part of our discussion today, I want to talk about what does hold us back. And in some future episodes in this series, there will be some managers on that will also get this question. But we've had, and I know you three have had a very healthy talk about this. Maybe, John, you can guide this conversation about what it is that does hold academics perhaps back and why it doesn't happen more often that we see these relationships with potential. And I can speak the best I can to some local government views, but I think that they're going to be best expressed in some future episodes as well. I'm going to kick it off and then is that okay? And then, so I'm going to shamelessly steal something that Tom said before. So I think one is really, why are academics held back? I think one is understanding context. And there's something about the immediate context. So that's something about the immediate political, small, big P context of higher education, the role of the academic. So I know that here in the UK, during my kind of working lifetime, the expectations on early career researchers and academics have grown. So the expectations of what early career researchers should be doing or what academics should be doing over the last 30 years has grown significantly. And there, there are some. It's not, it is about funding, as Sarah was saying, to go to conferences, but it's also about headspace, emotional space. It's about the extent to which the culture within the home organization, because that's what we'll talk about just for the minute, is supported, has a bias in favor of the relationships that we're talking about, and how are young academics and not so young academics help to balance the workload between teaching, scholarship, research, and what we're talking about. And in a perfect circle or a bit per, in a virtuous circle, or no reason a circle actually is it, it's possible to see how those three worlds can reinforce and support each other. They're not separate worlds. The teaching world is not necessarily separate from the research world and is not necessarily separate from the external relational dimension that if we can make it work, they actually really support. And not only do they support and reinforce each other, they can also, they have a positive impact on faculty and departments and so on. But I think there are some in different parts of the world, there are some real pressures that they're not. I can't follow obviously what's going on in the States. Just come back from Budapest, Hungary, where the whole question of academic freedom and the role of universities is not just an academic discussion, it's a real political discussion. City Budapest is different politically, so there are certain things that can happen, did happen at that conference that are good, but nonetheless, it's a real issue. And just for that, take going too global, but um, one of the sessions at the conference was the report by the, the, the ASPA Presidential Commission on International Engagement and Scholarship. And 
you know, what was fascinating about that, sitting in Budapest, the panel made up a number of people who participated in that report talking about it. It, what I found really fascinating, it wasn't just about the big questions that were in my kind of politically active use was about South Africa. Should we go to South Africa? Should you support South Africa before the end of the apartheid? So I was thinking, oh, Humphrey, yeah. the big questions is like, no, actually it was for Sarah and Tolan was in a context of Black Lives Matter, are there certain cities or certain states where given the change in some of the voting laws and registration laws, what's the role of academic conferences and initiatives in that context? So it wasn't global politics, it was about domestic politics. Or at least it was raising the question about the responsibility of the academy to the broader community. All of that. So in that's the context that academics are working in. And then there's the context in which the managers are working in. And I think my feeling or my view is that it's our role to try to understand both worlds. And it's necessary to understand both worlds in order to see what possibilities are. And of course, there's more than two worlds, but in the simple kind of dichotomy of the binary, but the manager and the package. I could spin off on a, a number of things that John just mentioned, but that, that would keep us here for another several hours, probably. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll just comment on, on two things. One, the, the issue on the university side and the, the felt or actual discretion faculty members have, researchers and professors have to engage with community very much depends on what, what their academic rank is in the institution. I recently completed an analysis at, at my university as part of our application for the Carnegie Foundation Elegics Classification for Community Engagement. And I looked at available data that suggests those members of the faculty who are most likely to engage in community-based work or work with the community were in, in the following order. One, non-tenure track faculty in the United States, so adjuncts of professors. Secondly, non-tenure track full-time career positions in the United States, we would call them lecturers or instructors at different levels and, and followed, following that with full professors, so people at my rank and Sarah's rank who have a, have the, the luxury, if you will, of taking more time to build relationships and to complete work that is more time intensive with community. And then associate professors after that, assistant professors, tenure track assistant professors who have the most, the most to prove in terms of traditional academic metrics, publishing, grant writing, these kinds of things, and are less likely to invest the time. Perversely or unfortunately, it's those, those assistant professors who are often freshly out of their PhD studies, who are most passionate about 
doing community work. They just don't have the felt or actual discretion to, to do it. And then, so that, that's part of the context with, uh, on the university side. And then I'll, I'll shamelessly steal something that John said <laughs> or, or build on it with an earlier comment uh, in reference to Sarah's sending students to the farm for the summer and the liability concerns. And this is an important issue, actually, as we think about partnerships formal partnerships, and especially the lawyers and risk regulators and assessors are inevitably going to get involved on both sides of the equation. I'm sure that happened on the farm. I had a case that I worked on a few years ago at my university, a new program called the Walking School Bus, which exists in different parts of the world where the volunteers within a certain radius of a school will form a, uh, basically a, a walking line where there's no public school bus transportation provided, that they will walk the kids from their homes to the school so parents don't have to sit in long queues to drop their kids or pick up their kids. It's a walking school bus. But when we first started to form this program, with funding from a state agency, the State Department of Transportation, we hit a series of brick walls, first from our lawyers at the university saying, we don't want the, uh, the liability if a kid gets hit by a car or trips and hurt or anything like this. The school district similarly was saying, we don't want the liability. The State Department of Transportation didn't want the liability. And so the good idea was being foiled by, by lawyers. And I like to joke that we keep our lawyers fully employed sometimes with the kinds of projects that I bring in the door. But what got us through and what I think is key to overcome these bureaucratic hurdles is, is that personal relationship. Uh, if, so as John said, with his relationship with the one official that lasted however many years they stayed in touch, they said, as soon as resources are available, we'll move. That's exactly what's needed in, in these environments. The relationships don't start with the bureaucracies. If they start with the bureaucracies, you're always thinking about, okay, what can we fit within our existing rules? If they start with the individuals and the shared passion and the shared goals and the shared commitments, then you can figure out where those pathways are around the rules, where you can get waivers to the rules, but they require that relationship. They require persistence and and ultimately, you, you muddle your way through to something, hopefully, that's, that's the net gain for a for the city, for the county, for the nonprofit, for the university, and for the community that's being served. Okay. To Tom's point, if I had not shared a wall with chief legal counsel for the university, I probably don't think that farm trip would have happened. <laughs> so definitely learning the ways to work around bureaucracy. I also wanted to add, I have a unique perspective having been a practitioner and an academic, and I know that you're going to get the practitioner viewpoint later on in the season, but I was an executive director of a nonprofit, state director for a national nonprofit, and I actually grew up living inside of a nonprofit because my mom helped to start Ronald McDonald House Charities in Tampa Bay, where she was the onsite manager for 32 years, and I lived inside the house, and so I've I've lived nonprofits my entire life and I didn't, but I didn't live academia. 
And so when I was running a nonprofit, I needed to hire social workers and I was having trouble finding social workers. And I, at the time I lived in Tallahassee and one of the chapters of the nonprofit I ran was in Tallahassee. And I said, Florida State is right there. This is before I went to Florida State to get my PhD. Florida State is right there. Like, why can't I find social workers? I'm really like, we're paying a good wage. Like we're, it's not free labor we're after. And I tried to find somebody at the university to reach out to about hiring their students. And it was really difficult. Like universities oftentimes are siloed ivory towers and they can be very intimidating and difficult to navigate for practitioners. And so when I ended up leaving that role to go back to get my PhD at Florida State, one of the first things I did was went to the department and I said, we need to create a portal for practitioners to be able to access the resources that we have here. If we want to build better collaboration with the community, we need to make a mechanism for that to happen. And so we created essentially a portal that allowed nonprofits to, to interact and put in requests with the university. And I think that is something that's growing, but that's not, if you come at it from an academic administration perspective, that's not something that's going to be in the forefront of your mind. Yeah. The whole, the navigating is a critical issue. And when I think about local government managers, and I think this must be true for academics, you feel like your plate is so full that you're not really going to go out of way. You might not consciously say that, but subconsciously you're thinking, I don't need more people to have more access to me or there, there can be, I know on the part of the, the local government manager, I know during COVID having conversations about helping the community pull together and to navigate this particularly small businesses and had not done anything really with technology, having to really change and shift the way they did business. I, when I talk with managers about that, they're like, that's not our role. And yet they came around the more we talk to being that person who can help navigate. So for instance, in my ideal world, they have a relationship with a John or a Tom or a Sarah. They have relationships maybe with the chamber in the community. They know the local government resources. So when something comes up and they're hearing it in their community, they may not be responsible, but they might be the navigator, the one that says, I'm going to bring John in. I'm going to bring some people to the table, invite them to have a conversation about what might come out of this. And I think that goes on to different degrees, but that's part of what I'm interested in exploring here to see if it could happen more often. I think local government is also difficult to navigate. And I think that local government is working hard to address that. They are, in most cases, really trying to be more accessible and friendly for community people to find what they need. So I'd like to just carry this through in terms of what it could look like if we were to be better at not only making an invitation, but keeping that relationship warm. What are some ways that might happen? I know Sarah talked about changing some practices and values at the university level, being able to maybe refocus on this bridge building. Yeah, I think Tom pointed out really well that there are different levels in academia and we're all focused on different things based on where we are in our career. And so as young assistant professors typically don't have tenure, 
you get tenure when you move to the associate professor level, oftentimes, not always. The issue is that we're given very strict guidelines on what is necessary to make tenure. And that's the golden goose in academia, right? It's supposedly, quote unquote, everybody is looking to get tenure. And so if we can change those metrics and not just focus on publisher parish, and we can include and value the contributions that faculty members are making in the community in a substantive way, then by including those in the promotion and tenure guidelines, then we can really start to help change the contextual environment that we're operating within as faculty and maybe motivate and incentivize even faculty to engage in this work more. Jump in, 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 in terms of what it might look like. I, uh, when I was given my final promotion to full professor rank at the university, I delivered what's called an inaugural lecture, which is practiced at some universities. It's more common outside of the United States, but you can find it in some places in the U.S. as well. It's basically an inaugural lecture given to the community upon elevation to the highest academic rank and everybody, all the academics are wearing their regalia, the gowns, the caps, everybody looks so beautiful and distinguished, uh, in their, in, in their, in their regalia. And so I was wearing mine as well, but that, what I did, I'm a, I'm an old thespian from dating back to before high school. I took it as a bit of a performance start and I, I got up in my regalia. I started my speech. It concerns this question of university community work together. And I started to disrobe as I went through the speech. And this, and, and I was wearing something underneath. Don't worry. <laughs> but the message was we need to strip ourselves of these symbolic artifacts that separate us from the communities. And that's exactly what we need to do uh, uh, is present ourselves as as open as 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 fellow members of a shared geographic community and other forms of community with shared interest and seeing that families have a good place to to live to grow up where social problems are addressed where rhetoric is not demonizing where communities can grow stronger together all these things that we might aspire to as communities, uh, that we are in it together. We're in the same boat. We're not floating uh, above anybody within the university. And to pretend that we are is, uh, suggests that the experiential knowledge is rather than the book knowledge of folks who are doing the work day to day, doing the grind, who are in the weeds, that their knowledge, their experiences are not as valuable as what we have in academia. And that's a terrible message to, to communicate either intentionally or unintentionally, symbolically or otherwise. So how this looks is a breaking down of these walls. That's on the university side. And on the community side, it's a, the lens through which, you know, part of it, it's a culture change that starts with the university, but the community organizations, cities, counties, government officials, nonprofits, have to be open to seeing the university as a trusted partner, not as a 
not only as a source of data and analysis, but as a source of ideas. Because though folks in university may not have the deep experience in a single geographic community or on a single substantive policy issue in the local area, but they are likely to have a more very general and perhaps a vast knowledge of how other communities around the world have addressed similar issues. They'll know that they'll know what the data look like. They'll know what interventions may or may not be successful. They'll have a broader intellectual history that can be brought to the table and that can inspire some unique thought. So it's the, what this looks like is a combination and an integration of experiential knowledge and expert knowledge, stripping away the artificial walls that separate us with an open invitation that is truly that. It's an open to invitation with an open palm, with an open hand, and not, not based on some, uh, some norm or perceived norm of expert doctor and subject teacher or student. Yes, and hierarchical. There's a sense of superior and <laughs> less than superior, mm-hmm. which I have heard can be introduced into some relationship. But one of the things that you said, Tom, and maybe you or any of you would like to respond to that I think gets at this is what I would call a generous spirit, that you're going into this with a sense of here's what actually you can ask for. I loved that because people don't always know what to ask for, what's appropriate. This goes back to our maybe lack of understanding of one another. So you said that we can, we can help them ask for more. Yeah, absolutely. And understanding what the question is, is part of the dialogue, is part of the relationship. As, as we begin conversation, we begin to talk about the challenge of air quality in the neighbor, in the communities. If we can begin to talk about youth delinquency, as we begin to talk about any number of social or economic challenges that are facing communities, we explore each other. We understand each other's languages. We understand each other's values. And together we can craft the, the real questions that we're trying to address. Uh, we can each make up our own questions now, but they're going to look very different than if we come together and craft them together. Framing the questions in a way that can benefit everybody, mm-hmm. and especially the community, is what emerges through dialogue and discourse. That's where it starts. And sometimes I, I, I have to just say, if you go to a party and there's a mix of academics and non-academics, sometimes they have a different idea of what's important in a conversation. And, and then I see John nodding his head. There is some understanding of context of what a person who works every day at the local government, citizens all day coming in with concerns, it might feel a little different in terms of what they want to talk about or what they see is most pressing. And that's a, that's an empathy piece that you have spoken about, but I would include that here. I think having empathy for what the academic really cares about and then trying to appreciate that there's going to be different things you're going to bring to the table. Yeah. I'd like to make two follow-up points. I think that both John and Tom have said throughout the conversation that 
in the various ways that most faculty are intrinsically motivated to want to help our communities, especially in our field, right? We got into this type of work because we love working with communities. And I personally don't think I know a single faculty member that would turn down a request from a community organization in need. And they may not be able to do it themselves, but they'll find somebody that, that will help. Most faculty members, I think, feel that way. I also want to point out that I think my experience is a bit different than John and Tom's has been because I'm, frankly, I'm a woman. And women faculty tend to have very different experiences than men faculty, male faculty do. Um, women faculty, by research has shown, tend to carry more, carry more in general. We do more service on, in general, and we carry a lot more of these kind of emotional labor components associated with this type of work. And on top of that, I'm a younger female faculty member. I look especially young, thanks to great genes. And so I have never had the experience that maybe John and Tom have where, where community organizations seem intimidated by me or they, they are unwilling to come to me. If not, if not anything else, I tend to be flooded by these types of requests. And, and I consider that a good thing that, that I consider that means that hopefully the organization thinks I'm open to these types of requests. And so I think that the one takeaway I would say here is that women faculty, we tend to be much smaller represented in terms of percentage in academia. So don't be afraid to reach out to the men too. <laughs> just kind of just two things I don't know why I'd agree with what Sarah's just said. So the two things I'd add, I think, are part of, I think, our responsibility. And I would say it's our responsibility. At our individual responsibility, but in our kind of institutional role to help faculty members understand this too, which is that it seems to me that managers in local government and in not-for-profit areas sometimes also have this sense of not just a not quite sure what to ask, but also that thing about you were talking about before about the sense of autonomy or discretion. So there's something about the, I think I know what I, I need to ask, but I don't know who to, but I don't know whether I can bit. And how does that affect us? I think it affects us in helping people we work with understand the ways in which as university academics, we can shape change within, but also help change without. And there's something really important. Sarah talked about the participatory action search approach is something around community development as a form of practice, which some of your neighborhood managers, Nancy, I'm sure will be familiar with, if only, and in which it seems to me there's some real important lessons there yeah. about the kind of practice that we, on a sense, are talking about. So for me, it is about understanding how the organize, my own organization works. Lots of people don't, lots of people I mean, I don't know whether Sarah and Tom would agree with this. They understand the formal process. There are some other aspects around the informals that not, but they also, depending, and this is your point, Sarah, depending on gender and race, but actually experience the organization differently, clearly differently from how I am. That's one thing. The second thing I think, and we haven't talked much about this today, 
we've been focusing on the positive and the notion of building trust and relations is conflict. Mm. And some of the actions of the local city managers may be in conflict with some of the communities that we are working with and supporting and identifying with. And so it's how, how we play out our role in that, or indeed how we might be drawn upon to act as facilitators or engage in conflict resolution where there are problems, which at the city level, city managers are dealing with. So yes, the relationships is really important. Yes, the possibilities are almost limitless, I think, in terms of the, the positive change that can be promoted both with our undergraduates, our postgraduates, with the individuals and communities and families that kind of coexist where our university is situated. But also some of that is conflict and it's about how we help both analyze it, understand it, make sense of it, but also at times help work conflict through. Thank you, John. I want to just open it up for any closing comments. I have one final question for you all, but I want to make sure that we didn't miss anything important that you thought of coming into the call today and haven't had a chance to bring up or want to respond to John. Anything else? I'll piggyback on what John just said about conflict. And this is important from a university perspective, as well as for the awareness of our friends in city, county, and other organizations. As university, as professors or students or others enter the community arena, so to speak, and begin to work with organizations, inevitably we are going to become part of the small p political conversations that are occurring. I think it's nearly impossible to avoid. And so we, from the university side, we have to be aware of that of those politics, including partisan big P politics that might play into who we engage with, what questions we ask, how we write our findings, what reports we develop, what language we use, what recommendations we make through our writing and through our presentations. We're entering into political conversation and that's yeah, we had, we just have to be aware of that and our partners need to be aware that this is not our normal place, <laughs> that we are, we're not politicians. We, we don't exist in a political arena historically, traditionally, at least most of us. So we have to be aware of that from a self-awareness perspective and for others to be aware of that. Just one example on that, I, a few years ago, I was contracted to do a report for a coalition of nonprofit organizations on child well-being in the local county. And the, the report, the advocates, the organizations wanted to see an increase in the local sales tax to fund a special children's services district. And the county mayor at the time was opposed to this increase in sales tax as a means to fund this special district, arguing that the special district was not really necessary. But I developed the report. The organization that, that 
did the contract with me and my team said, can we, let's call the report why we can't wait. And I said, no, this is my report under my name, using the name of my university. We cannot be an ad. We can't be advocacy in our report. This is an object. We can be of service to you by being objective in our scholarship and our analysis. We are not advocates. Your job is to be the advocate. And so we said, no, we can't name it, name it like that. But the report ended up in the political arena. Mm. It became part of the political debate that those who were opposed to creating this special children's district started to refer to the report in news media as the Briar Report. Now, I've always fancied that this idea of having a report named after me in some sure. cool media-driven way, but I didn't want it in this form. <laughs> the, the Briar Report it became politicized, and then that created a set of tensions that were a bit uncomfortable. But everybody remained on good terms. The former mayor is still a good partner and colleague, now in a different position in the government. And so, but it, this is part of what we are entering into in this, as we talk about breaking down these walls, we are inevitably entering new territory that is unfamiliar for us in academia and we have to be ready. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about trust. I think we're inferring trust in everything that we're saying today, but it takes a while to build that trust to know this is Tom Breyer when he comes in. Professor Breyer is going to do a study and this is how it's going to be framed. But it may take a while to know that's the way you work. That's the relationship piece. Yeah. Just yeah. very quick, Jan, I don't know what you've got an example, Sarah, the kind that Tom has. I and it happened to me quite early on in my career, and it was naivety on my part. And it was about not, I was commissioned to do a piece of work, and I thought I was relating to the organization that commissioned me. They were funded by a UK central government department who had, who made it very clear that they expected the report to say certain things. And I thought that the, the relationship was with the people who'd commissioned the report, not the people who were funding it. So that was a naivety. And that, what that led to was a really uncomfortable set of meetings, I have to say, with, in which the government department was present and said, we're not going to publish this report, we'll put it on our website. But, and that was, came down to the fact that I was saying that their initiative hadn't been as successful as the government department wanted it to be. Now, if I'd been on managing relationships 101 and developing trusted partnership, I would be much more tuned into that dynamic. And it, it became one of my kind of learning pieces. It was essentially about understanding who's funding it. And to sense the power dimension, yeah. what I thought was happening wasn't happening at all. It's one of those things where what you say is being told Perhaps isn't really how it is. I don't know whether you've had that kind of experience, Sarah, where something you've done has been taken and views in a particular way. Yeah, I, I think Tom and John both make really salient points that there's two different types of pressure that university professors are under right now when we operate within the community context is that when we do individual research, we have to remain neutral and especially when we're doing any sort of qualitative research and 
I've had the experience where I was asked by a local government to do a report and make recommendations on what they should do with a building based on a community needs assessment. But there were very specific parties at play in that they wanted the report to be written a certain way so that specific organizations would benefit from that building. But I had to reiterate again and again to them, even if it cost us the relationship in terms of university with the county, that it was going to come out based on what the community needs assessment says. So we, that's an example of how we operate under individual levels of research pressures in a political context. But going back to Tom's point, we are operating in a completely unknown to larger political context. At a state level, university professors can now be prosecuted in certain states for certain types of research that they do. I just had a conversation very candidly. I'll talk about it with one of my best friends and work wife and co-author who's at the University of Florida. And Florida is passing some very rules mm-hmm. about what you can and can't say and what you can and can't promote. And that is, Tom's, Tom is smiling. That okay. is, because <laughs> he knows exactly what I'm talking about. That is scary because her work, what she operates in, deals around racism and systemic bias. And so there's a legitimate concern about, A, is there going to be pushback that involves her family? And B, is it going to affect her career? And B, could she potentially be in criminal issues because of the work that she's trying to do neutrally as possible? So it's a completely unknown world for university professors. But with that being said, don't let that stop you from reaching out and working with the university world. Because we've been operating in a context for hundreds of years that we work with communities and Universities are supposed to be places of inquiry and free discourse. And so those of us that hold those tenants true still will do the work regardless of what the cost is personally or professionally. So great discussion. That's another episode we need to do. There is one I'm hoping to do later in the year on ethics, the ethics discussion. And that would be a wonderful one to bring academics in along with managers, the ethics rules that are they're being revised at ICMA. There is a larger discussion, I know, around that. So there's so much here to talk about. And I hope that coming out of this episode, there will be some ideas that will come to our listeners in terms of what they might envision for this, for this kind of partnership to occur. And I'd like to ask you just as a, a final question, what does your ideal invitation look like? Received or given? You are being approached or you are approaching. What's your ideal invitation look like? I'll share mine. You know, that's, I'll just share mine, I, if you don't mind, because it was exactly what John did. He used his social capital to introduce me to Tom. And it was not difficult for me to approach you, Tom. If I just came out of the blue, that would have been a bit difficult for me. I would have felt you need to know who I am before we can start a conversation. But as it, you were willing to take that leap of faith because of it came from John. I think that would be an example on my part. That was an ideal. I was introduced. Yeah. The ideal invitation, it really depends on for whom the invitation is coming. So if there is a, um, 
a known relationship or a long-term relationship, for instance, I have a wonderful colleague in the city of Orlando, Marcia Hope Goodwin, who if we contact each other on a semi-regular basis as a need arises or a project emerges for us, but we don't, we're not best of chums. We engage each other when we need to. So if an invitation, if she calls me up and says, I've got a special project, this just happened a couple of weeks ago. She says, I'm on the board of, of, a, of an arts organization and they're looking for somebody to come in and help with a, an assessment, a program evaluation so they can go out and get some more external funding for their work. Uh, can we have a, can we have a short conversation? So sure. That's all that's needed from her because we have the long history, but for a new contact. So if we have a, a new newly appointed city manager or deputy city manager or assistant city manager in a local government who is just feeling their way around, around the region, getting to know people, the invitation that they might reach out, uh, it, it will look a bit different potentially. Maybe a, a little bit more about their backgrounds, but uh, something that gives a sense of credibility beyond their position title as to why they want to have a conversation with me. But in both cases, what I think that just talking it through right now, the, in both cases, the invitation is open-ended and I really probably am less likely to respond to an invitation that is structure or too rigid, we need you to come in and do, we need a strategic plan. This is the timeline. This is the budget. I might do it, but at the other hand, I'll come into the conversation with constraints. I'm more likely to start thinking about farming it out before, before having the conversation and that will eliminate possibilities of what we might do together. So I, so just thinking it through, I think the. You're not an expert on order necessarily, but you you want you would be open to the possibilities that could arise out of the that would be the ideal invitation. I think so. Yeah, let's have a conversation. Let's open it yeah. up. Let's have a conversation. That's lovely, John and Sarah. What's your ideal invitation look like? <laughs> I was going to say, John, you go first. <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't know that I have a good answer to this. You can yeah. come me via email, via Skytype, via Morse code. I, I, as if you and I have aligned interests, I am in terms of we want to both help our communities, then I want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am interested and I, some of my best relationships with nonprofits have come because I was hiking in the middle of a national forest and I ran into somebody and made a friend and you, I don't think we can put constraints on how relationships are built. It's just a matter about making sure that we are both mutually beneficial and aligned in our thought processes. So if somebody wants to reach out to you, Sarah, they listen to this today, this episode, and they're thinking, she sounds like somebody I would really like to have a conversation with. They need Absolutely. to let you know. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And express something about their interests. You had mentioned that just having that sort of common interest in community is important to you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I welcome anybody that wants to reach out. That's great. Uh, I guess the thing that we're all saying is it's, to some extent, it's a recommendation. To some extent, it's a kind of, it might just be an unplanned encounter, which then leads to a conversation, which leads to something. I suppose for me, what we're saying is that we're kind of open, mm. we're open to having conversations. So the, there's a value in the recommendation in the sense that it acts as a certain kind of filter. I'm less interested and I have been approached in the past, less interested in doing now in doing kind of strategic plan analysis and all that kind of stuff. If you, I always want to say, if you want to do that's fine, but I'm not the person, but I can make you find you someone. Yeah. I might say, why do you want to do it? And that might lead to a different conversation. That might lead to a different dialogue about what somebody's saying my needs are. So the plan might be something they have to do for their role, their job, but actually and they're wanting a bit of help with that, but it, what lies behind that is something else. So I suppose it's, but if you're in this space, you're interested in often what lies behind the request, mm -hmm. what that might lead to. I do value, I do value that thing about the recommendation, but I can see that it can also be a bit it can have its risks, culture. Just going back to yeah. the example that Sarah gave earlier on about working in the nonprofit sector. I need social workers. The university does social workers. How do I get access to them? Yeah. I'm just reminded that in my last job about seven years ago, five years ago, a local government manager contacted me because a colleague of hers had been at a meeting where I had spoke and she said, I really want to talk to you about developing a relationship with the university. The reason I'm saying she knew Sarah is she was also basing on the fact that she had a responsibility for the hiring of social workers and she knew that a lot of them came from our university and she thought they were good. So it was a combination of someone she knew in her office had heard me speak. She knew something about the university and she put those two together and said, can we have a, a conversation about a relationship, which is broader than just you, you provide our social workers. So that wasn't the university going out. It was the outside world coming in. I would just say when I talk about partnerships and relationships, I always like to use marriage metaphors and sometimes they fall apart pretty quickly, but sometimes they work. The general counsel is don't get married for money. You will need the relationship first. And from an invitation perspective, both for community government coming to university and for university going out to government or other organizations, do not ask for someone's hand in marriage in order to get rich. You, you want to, you want to build a relationship first. Now there are times when there's a grant proposal due, we need a partnership. We need a documented partnership. And then there needs to be an emergency ask of you know, a forced marriage to, to be eligible for funding. And 
that's okay. You can do that, but but a lot of those funding cycles are just that. They're cycles. If you miss this cycle, you can go again the following year. So don't force it too much because of if you force too much, you can leave a, a bad taste in somebody's mouth. Yeah. First impressions matter. And it's better to give up a short-term grant opportunity than a lot of fruitful partnership that can open up other doors. So don't get married for money. Think about the long-term. Yeah, yeah. We started today talking about building meaningful relationships. And Tom introduced the idea of the relational manager, which we want to get a link to that chapter, if we can, for the show, Tom. And we also talked, John, really talking about being genuine, a genuine partner. And Sarah really talking about just being the open to the to even random opportunities to develop and follow a thread, what happened in the agricultural community, just being open to the possibilities in the moment. These go to the heart of being able to engage in that relational area of life that we're talking about and today. And I just want to thank you all for, for investing your time and your energy and your thoughts into this conversation. I feel like I've moved forward in my understanding, and I'm really excited that we were able to do this particular conversation first, because I think it really feeds me in terms of what I can bring to the future conversations that we do with this series. So I just want to thank you all so much today. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. Thank you for accepting. Yeah. Wonderful to see you all. And Sarah, I hope we have a chance to meet. And John, if you're coming to the States, I want to know as well, maybe you'll be up in the Pennsylvania area, but, uh, and Tom, I'll see you maybe at ICMA later this year. It's good to see you all. I will be there. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care, Sarah. Love to see you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Vance. Bye. Bye.